Mr. Janata Steven, Director, Institute of Policy Studies, Your Excellencies, ladies and gentlemen. I'm very happy to be back in your good company, and as many of you said very early this morning. When I was preparing for this speech, I looked back at the themes of the last three conferences I attended. In 2014, it was differences. In 2016, it was the word we. And in 2018, it was together. Differences, we, together. These themes are highly relevant to our discussion today. Differences have come to define politics today. Across the world, existing fault lines have deepened and have been exploited. This, in turn, puts stress on the sense of we, stressing social cohesion and weakening mutual trust. And in many places, this has severely undermined society's ability to forge a common path forward. As Singapore is not immune from these pressures, the key imperative for our politics should be to manage our differences, expand our common purposes to engender a greater sense of we, and ensure that society can progress as one, together. I will address each of these themes in turn. The first word, differences. Over the last decade, many countries have seen their political consensus fracture. The state of the world did not used to be this way. After the Second World War, the major players in the world forged a new global order based on the ideals of multilateralism, the market economy, and free trade. The expansion of trade and investment enabled economic growth at an unprecedented pace. Advanced economies led the charge on global economic growth and globalization, while cascading technology, skills, and capital to the developing economies. Global trade boomed, investments poured into developing countries, and billions of people saw their lives improve. Singapore is one of those countries that has benefited significantly from globalization. But the last decade has shown that not all countries have kept pace with the changes confronting them. In some societies, globalization has exposed workers to greater competition, while technological advancements has disrupted jobs and livelihoods. The developed world is feeling the competition as a number of developing economies, including those in Asia, move up rapidly, move rapidly up the value chain. In some instances, these countries have leapfrogged the developed world in areas such as e-commerce and e-payments. Wealth and income inequality have grown. And the consequences have been more severe for countries that have failed to restructure their economies and upskill their workers. Societies with rapidly aging populations are feeling the strain because many pension plans, pension plans are underfunded and welfare spending is at an unsustainable high. The ripple effects of these changes have resulted in many people becoming anxious and resentful. 
they have become increasingly pessimistic about their future and upset about the lack of progress in life. They have amplified much of their discontent on social media in narrow silos and echo chambers. More worryingly, they have come to view their governments and institutions with mistrust. This has ushered in an era of anti-politics. Insurgent political parties, including far-right parties, have exploited these fears and frustrations for their own political gain, campaigning along nativist and protectionist lines and further undermining trust in public institutions. These divisive forces have washed over many societies, including in Europe and Latin America. In the US, bipartisan consensus over important issues has evaporated, and the Democrats and Republicans each move to shore up their own base ahead of their elections at the end of the year. And in Asia, it has been more than seven months since mass rallies and protests, violent protests, erupted in Hong Kong. While we have fared better than most, we are not immune to the same divisive forces that have swept across the world. In fact, we have already seen some semblance of nativist tendencies here in Singapore, such as some of the public discourse around foreigners. If we do not act decisively, and if we allow these forces to creep up on us, our hopes and concerns can be exploited to create fear and anger. Our diversity can be turned against us, our unity can fray, and our society can wither. Therefore, as we close the decade, we need to bear in mind lessons such as the importance of making sure that differences do not become entrenched and corrode social cohesion, the dangers of political parties using divisive rhetoric to gain support in a fractured landscape, and the risk of falling prey to the pool of populism. We cannot assume we will be immune. This brings me to the second word, we. Amid these disruptive forces, can Singapore be different? Can Singaporeans strengthen our sense of we in the coming decade and beyond? The notion of we as citizens of Singapore is relatively new. We are a young nation, and as our bicentennial last year reminded us, our present existence as a successful sovereign nation is a historical anomaly. That's because for most of our history, this place was part of larger kingdoms. We were buffeted by global and regional forces, and our fate was determined by powers beyond our control. Eventually, our self-determination set us on a different course. We became an independent nation, and we were able to find success as one united people. There are two key questions here. First, how did our forefathers beat the odds and turn an island of mud flats into a multicultural metropolis? And second, what must we do to keep our nation successful 
and sovereign. I believe a strong sense of we was key to this. Our improbable success was made possible by exceptional governance, capable leaders working together with a united people. In the decades after independence, our founding fathers fostered a sense of nationhood by introducing policies that gave people a stake in Singapore. They welcomed foreign investments and decided on the path of rapid industrialization, creating jobs for the tens of thousands of young Singaporeans entering the workforce each year, and enabling people to provide for their families. They invested heavily in education and ensured each generation had more opportunities than the last. For example, only 22% of those born in the 1940s received post-secondary education. For young Singaporeans today, that figure is more than 95%. Through the housing policies, our founding leaders turned the city of squatters and slums into a nation of homeowners in just a few decades. Together, these policies meant that every Singaporean, regardless of race, language or religion, had a chance to live well, age well, and a chance to make the future better for their children. This shared experience of progress united the founding generation of Singaporeans and strengthened the trust between the people and the government. Over time, a virtuous cycle was established, the government had a strong mandate and was able to never stop planning for the future. They realised their bold political vision through sound, sustainable policies. In turn, Singaporeans trusted their leaders because they saw their lives improve in real ways and they had a strong sense of optimism for the future. This nurtured the reservoir of trust between Singaporeans and the government, and this gave them the confidence to make sacrifices for the greater good and for future generations. This is the reason behind our success and has kept, or rather this is the formula behind our success and, it has, and this has kept Singapore exceptional. This approach must remain core to the government's mission, especially as we grapple with longer-term issues facing us. In an era of rising inequality, we will strengthen our fundamentals and ensure no Singaporean is shut out of opportunities because of the family circumstances. That is why we have been increasing our investments in preschool education and doing more to level up children from disadvantaged backgrounds. In an age of disruption, we will step up efforts to encourage lifelong learning for our workers. We are currently developing the next bound of skills future and will make a further push to help workers pick up new skills and seize new opportunities. One such group are those in their 40s and 50s. Some among them completed their education more than two decades ago and might not have had the opportunity to upskill. In a period of widening generational divides, 
we must continue to give hope to our young. Public housing will continue to remain accessible and affordable to all Singaporeans. And as our people live longer and as our society ages, we will take care of older Singaporeans. Our seniors should not only have a roof over their heads, but also have enough for retirement and their health care needs. The Pioneer and Medica Generation packages were tailored to help older cohorts meet their health care needs for life. We are now studying how we can better help lower and middle income Singaporeans, including current and future seniors, to meet their retirement needs in a sustainable way. I will provide more details in the coming budget. Our unity as a nation and as one people have been strengthened by our sense of shared mission. This was not achieved by closing ourselves off to the world or by looking inward. Instead, we, as we turn our gaze to the next decade and beyond, we must continue to be creative and agile in charting our way forward and we must stay open and connected. This is especially because in the coming years, we will be confronted by the continued strategic competition between the US and China, and an even swifter pace of change in the nature of jobs and the economy, and the rapid aging of our society, and the increasing manifestation of existential threats like climate change. But there are bright spots. Southeast Asia is growing rapidly. Geographically and culturally, we are in a good position to contribute to the region's growth. More broadly, we are also well-placed to serve as a node between Asia and the world, as a global Asia node. As a small island nation, we are nimble. We are ready to innovate, testbed, and scale new solutions. In this way, we can continue to stay relevant to the world. And because we are small and non-threatening, we can be friends to all, even in a turbulent world. This is how we can turn our constraints into opportunities and create opportunities in the face of disruption. The way ahead will not be easy, but you have the unwavering commitments of the government and from the 4G leadership. My colleagues and I will make every effort to build a future of progress for Singaporeans in the coming decades. A future where we can continue to prosper as a nation, where all Singaporeans have opportunities to succeed. A future where the benefits of progress will be shared with all, where no one will be left behind if they give their best. A future where we pull together as one, turning our differences and diversity into our strengths. The differences and divisive forces I described earlier will continue to challenge our notion of we, our national identity and our sense of rootedness. But apart from these forces, Singaporeans ourselves are also becoming more diverse in terms of our needs, aspirations and views.
Singaporeans born after independence do not share the bonds of war and struggle that the Pioneer Gen and Merdeka generations experienced. The digital era has allowed for an exchange of diverse perspectives, but there has also been a proliferation of more extreme opinions and a narrowing of views in echo chambers. Our demographic profile is also changing. Last year, more than one in three citizen marriages involved transnational couples. In the face of all these changes, it's now even more crucial to maintain our sense of who we are as a people, focus on what we have in common and work together to build our shared future. How do we do this? We must first make sure that we continue to have strong political leadership. This means having political leaders of integrity who are deeply committed to the well-being of Singaporeans and the future of Singapore. The political leadership must have the trust and support of Singaporeans. They must have the ability to craft strategies to take Singapore forward amid the seismic changes around the world and to partner our people to deliver outcomes. They must have the moral courage to do what is right for the people and not just what is popular. They cannot be all things to all people. Since our independence, Singaporeans have worked together with our political leaders to turn an improbable nation into a land of opportunities. We must continue to do the same by strengthening trust between the government and the people and also among Singaporeans. In this regard, what I learned during the 2012 Our Singapore Conversation exercise was both instructive and heartening. OIC was not just a forum for the younger leaders to better understand the aspirations and concerns of Singaporeans, but also a platform for Singaporeans to hear and better understand each other's perspectives. My experience working with Singaporeans showed me that they understand the trade-off and the need to make hard decisions for the collective good. They are also willing to find common causes and work together to overcome the odds, to make the impossible possible. This collective can-do spirit has been forged over the decades as we face challenges together. Time and again, crisis after crisis, we have shown that every Singaporean will rise to the occasion and do his or her part, and that no one will be left behind. Some may not think much about what we have achieved together. But I believe our people can see, understand, and draw their own conclusions. They can see that the government will always strive to understand their needs and concerns, work hard to address them, and deliver on our promises. We are upfront about the hard truths facing Singapore, and also about mistakes, even if they are politically inconvenient. Nevertheless, in a society increasingly flooded by misinformation, by information and misinformation, it is critical that we find ways to deepen understanding and relationships among our people and to redouble our efforts to maintain a balanced perspective. We must reject extremist views that will fray our social fabric and be discerning about falsehoods and irresponsible promises that cannot be fulfilled.
Most importantly, we must find new ways to come together, affirm what we hold in common, and work collectively towards a shared future. This is why I launched the Singapore Together Movement in June last year. I believe that each of us can make a difference. And by acting together, we can make a bigger difference and achieve what may seem daunting or impossible. Therefore, my 4G colleagues and I are committed to go beyond just working for you to working with you to build our future Singapore. We want to mobilize the passion, creativity, and can-do spirit of Singaporeans as we find common costs, experiment with new ideas and solutions, and beat the odds together. Our partnership efforts have gained momentum over the last six months. Ministers Desmond Lee and Indrani Raja gave a comprehensive progress on the Singapore Together movement earlier this month. So I'll just highlight a few areas. First, we are opening up several areas for Singaporeans to get directly involved in designing policies and putting them into action. We started new platforms like the Citizens Panel and Citizens Workgroup, where we engage Singaporeans on their ideas about making different aspects of life better, such as improving work-life harmony and encouraging household recycling. The ideas are well thought out and we are working to put their ideas into action. We're also involving Singaporeans in directly shaping our fiscal environment. This includes the Somerset Belt, our parks, and also the Geelong Sarai Cultural Precinct, which I visited over the weekend. Singaporeans of all ages will have a hand in developing ideas, evaluating the options, and shaping the eventual designs. On this note, I was very happy to find out that at the new forms and move, movements panel in the afternoon, you'll get to hear from change makers like social entrepreneur Mr. Chai Yingzhou and Ms. Noor Lastrina, who are passionate about tackling climate change. As well as Ms. Carrie Tan, who founded the charity Daughters of Tomorrow almost a decade ago. I hope their sharing will inspire all of us. Secondly, we have also been making a more concerted effort to engage Singaporeans on the upcoming budget. Just last weekend, I attended a session with youth leaders. We explored the challenges and opportunities for Singapore and how we can partner one another to create a better future for all. It was a rich learning experience for everyone and I certainly learned a lot. Third, Singaporeans are also sharing their ideas about making their home a better place and putting this into action. During our bicentennial year of commemoration, I attended many events by various religious groups, clans, schools, businesses, and charities. I learned so much about the imagination and commitment of each group to uplift the lives of people they are serving. Businesses are also doing their part in a span of three short years, 
the company of good initiative has grown into a network of more than 1,400 companies. This network has enabled companies to learn from one another, to form partnerships, and to bring corporate giving to the next level. Many Singaporeans are letting their actions speak for themselves. Total volunteer hours has increased from 45 million hours in 2008 to 122 million hours in 2018. And under SGCAS, there are many more opportunities to contribute than before. Singaporeans are gradually taking charge and doing good at all levels of society, each in their own way, mobilising the people around them to make Singapore a better place. The creativity, energies and commitment of our people is most inspiring. It encourages us to take the next steps to invite Singaporeans to tackle bigger challenges and seize more opportunities in the coming decades. What are some of these challenges and opportunities? Some are existential, like addressing climate change and rising sea levels. Others are issues that can benefit from fresh approach, such as how we can keep our seniors active and healthy as our lifespan increases. There are many possibilities for us to work together, such as keeping Singapore safe and secure, developing the full potential of our people, growing our economy to create more opportunities and resources for our people, or making sure Singapore will become a green, sustainable and livable city, and building a caring, cohesive community. I'm inviting all Singaporeans to work with us and with each other on these key challenges and opportunities. And we'll announce more details in the coming months. These are early days of our Singapore Together movement. What we see forming is a new model of partnership between government and Singaporeans in owning, shaping and acting on our future. In this process, government agencies are learning to develop and deliver policy solutions in a more collaborative manner. At the same time, Singaporeans too are gaining a deeper appreciation of the challenges and trade-offs in making national policy. And collectively, we are learning to understand different viewpoints, to distinguish truth from falsehoods, and to find a way forward in the midst of diverse and often conflicting opinions. However, the government will continue to exercise leadership in areas where we are expected to, such as in security and defence, and ensuring that we act decisively when the situation demands and we plan and act for the long term. Above all, I'm confident that our partnership efforts to date will set the foundations for the work of a generation. Just as our founding fathers made home ownership their cornerstone policy to give Singaporeans a stake in Singapore and a share in our progress, Singapore together will be our new cornerstone of nation-building, a way of working that reflects and strengthens our shared ownership of Singapore's future. So let me conclude.
Our approach to politics and governance has served us well over the past 55 years. As we embark on a new decade, we'll face a world marked by differences. As a small nation, we will be buffeted by these forces. We must continue to work with like-minded countries to bridge divides between countries and to tackle global common challenges. There is no doubt that our sense of unity as one people and our cohesion as a nation will be tested. But I'm confident that going forward, Singapore can continue to excel and thrive and shine brighter as a little red dot. Singapore together, this is our way forward, our way of ensuring that as we progress together and that the benefits of progress are felt by all Singaporeans. Our way of harnessing diversity as strength so that we are greater than the sum of our parts. Our way of creating a shared future and finding common ground so that we remain united as one people. Our way of ensuring Singapore remains exceptional as we ride the winds of uncertainty and waves of disruption. I invite all Singaporeans to join us on this journey as we continue to chart our shared future together. Thank you, and I look forward to hearing your views during the dialogue. We have slightly more than an hour. Um, we will not answer every question that is asked. Instead, I propose we have two or three questions before I turn the mic over to DPM. So let me begin by asking two questions so as to help frame the discussion. DPM, you spoke about the challenges that we will face in the foreseeable future. So let me ask, what are the three biggest challenges we will face up to, say, 2032, in the spirit of PRISM 2? <laughs> Second, define in one sentence, if you can, what is our biggest political challenge? Two very easy questions, Janadas. <laughs> it will be interesting to, to poll the audience and see what the audience think of all these issues. But as I mentioned in my uh, speech, you asked, well, what are the three biggest challenges that we will face? I think, uh, first, you will see rising geopolitical uncertainties. Then we are at a... I mentioned that in the earlier period after the World War II, there was a support for multilateralism, there was a support for free trade, and the advanced economies were growing very well, and they in turn cascaded their technology, their skills, and many developing countries caught up. So the world progressed together in a very uh, synergistic way. Both parties benefited from this. And indeed, the corporations that have ventured out have all benefited hugely from this. Investors who have ventured out all benefited hugely from this. And those developing countries that are receiving this also benefited uh, from this. And Singapore is a very good example of this. But um, over time, the developing countries are catching up. 
the companies are growing, and the gap is no longer so clear. And in fact, in some areas, there is a risk that some of these countries may actually be overtaking the advanced world. So, as a result of this, in, in many places, structural changes in the global economy, in the India economies, have not taken place. We cannot have a world that continues growing unless all of us make structural changes as other countries adjust. And this is something which I think we must take uh, seriously in Singapore because if other economies restructure, we must think of what is our new pattern of specialization, what is the value add that we can create to the rest of the world. But if that does not take place and workers are not reskilled, the industries will go and the workers who are affected will suffer from that. And as a result of which, you find that politics all over the world has become a lot more difficult. So because of that changes, you find that instead of a world of cooperation, a world of globalization, you will now see a world in greater conflict. Because this competition, the changing economic weight is also changing the strategic weight of different countries. And this is setting up a period of uncertainty. So the geopolitical strategic challenges are going to be significant, underpinned by the changing economic weights. And also, uh, this is spilling over to competition in technology. Because in the age of the fourth industrial revolution, everyone recognizes that the future of countries and the future of companies and economy depends on how well we have invested in R&D, how well we are able to make full use of technology. Now, in turn, technology is creating a very big challenge for uh, many workers. Because while technology has been great in terms of raising efficiency, it can also disrupt jobs in ways which were not possible before. And uh, changes are going to be quite pervasive. So you have a period of strategic uncertainty. You have, that's a first. And because of the economic issues that we have to deal with, and the economic issues in turn uh, depends very much on the skills, the level of skills and technology of the people. And this, this is going to make our cooperation with countries a lot more difficult. And, uh, but we must do our best. So I'm very glad, for instance, that uh, years back when I was in the Ministry of Trade Industry, we started this uh, free trade agreements, and in a, war, in a world of trade wars, I think we, we are one of the few countries with 24 free trade agreements with all major economies of the world. And that has helped us to provide a layer of insulation and to be a good base for economic activities. Now, the other... So I mentioned about the geostrategic uncertainty, the economic uncertainty. A third one is that all over the world, the, there's, the world is undergoing a very major demographic transition. The, in the advanced world, uh, TFRs and the population numbers are not growing as fast. In fact, in some countries, it is actually coming down. And even in China, the population is uh, coming down uh, soon. And countries which 
And there are many countries which have a very youthful population. They, they could have benefited from this wave. But in many of these places, there's, there's been insufficient investments in education, in training, in job creation. So while you have, in the advanced world, where labour force growth is no longer what it was before, and you have in a, developed world, in a developing world, skills mismatch of a significant scale. So all this is, will create a lot more stress, stresses and strains. So those are the three major challenges that we as a small open economy will have to uh, confront. And as a small nation where you have to deal with all powers big and small. But the little silver lining is that within Asia, within ASEAN, there has been, there continues to be strong support for economic integration, for economic cooperation, and we should make the full use of this and make our contribution. So that's yeah. one sentence. One sentence. Well, the the one sentence. So in the midst of all these very major changes that are going on around us. The question is, as I alluded to in my speech, will we stay together? By staying united, Singaporeans have shown time and again that we can beat the odds and continue to be exceptional. So the one sentence is, can we stay united and draw strength from our diversity draws strength from each other so that we can continue to progress together. Thank you. Our first question, uh, Professor Paul Tambia. Thank you. Good morning, DPM. Uh, I'm going to ask you a slightly harder question than what Janatas asked. <laughs> so, um, GST has been acknowledged universally as a regressive tax. In Singapore, we pay GST on medications. We even pay GST on the water conservation tax, which is probably the only place in the world where you pay tax twice on, on something like water. So my question is whether your government had considered alternatives to raising the GST for raising revenue. For example, uh, returning the top corporate uh, tax level to 20%, which is what it was before year of assessment 2017 or perhaps even taxing unearned income, such as uh, the estate duty where it was about uh, 12 years ago. Thank you. Thank you. Let's take another two more questions. If there are any on economic, yes, please, go ahead. Yeah. The young man, yes. Yes. Uh, hi, DPM. My name is Adriel from Yale and US College. I would like to ask um, about SG Together engagements. How do we ensure that the voices of the lower income and um, underrepresented individuals and communities are included in this engagement exercise such that um, the SG that we built together, it, the SG that we built for the future is one that is um, representative of collective Singaporeans? Thank you. Okay, completely different, but Ambassador? Thank you, Chairman. I have a question, DPM, about uh, we and managing differences. We key state before we face the challenges of leaky state. 
Lee Key State. Lee State. <laughs> um, I think our founding Prime Minister, Mr. Lee Kuan Yew, has said that uh, we, the Singapore Pledge, we, the citizens of Singapore, which you mentioned just now, is only an aspiration. While we all continue to work hard on it to make it a reality, not only a reality, but sustainability, what are these challenges? And my question is, are we managing the differences well? For example, I think Mr. Janadas mentioned just now that we invited the leader of opposition, but he declined. Congratulations to the IPS for doing so, but it's a pity that the leader of opposition declined. But managing differences is not just about opposition politicians, but people who differ in our views. Are we doing enough in managing those differences in order to remain united? And more than just a question of social cohesion and inequalities. Thank you. So, three questions, GST, why not something else? Um, SG together, how are we going to engage the lower income? And finally, how are we going to manage differences? Three questions and then we'll proceed to the fourth. Well, uh, first, Mr. Portenbayer's question about is GST regressive? I would like to correct you on that, that it is important for us to consider our tax system as a whole and not to pick on one or two pieces and say, well, this part is regressive, this part is not progressive and so on. Because what we collect in GST has also been seen A, against other taxes and B, against the spending. And in fact, we have deliberately, we have been very careful in designing the policies to make sure that the benefits of our tax system and of many of the schemes that we have benefit the lower income groups, the ones who need help the most. And there's another aspect which uh, Mr. Portambar may want to uh, remember that GST is not just paid by Singaporeans. It is paid by everyone who is in Singapore, whether they are here as tourists, they are here as uh, workers, as expatriates. It's paid by everyone in Singapore when they buy certain, uh, when they consume services, when they uh, by certain goods. So, if you consider in totality, in fact, the GST system, contrary to how it has always, if you look at the raw numbers, it looks like, yes, it is, uh, it may look regressive, but it is not. And you have, cannot pick one piece and forget about all the other bits. And there is another aspect which I think is worth bearing in mind, that even though I announced that, you know, the changes, today, the largest source of revenue for the government, for, the, for our budget for revenue, is not GST, is not corporate income tax, is not personal income tax. It is an element called NIRC, or Net Investment Returns Contributions. So net investment returns contribution is the 50% of the long-term returns of our reserves, of our national reserves. Now, I would like everyone to think about this and reflect on this. A country with no oil, no gas, no diamond, no minerals, in fact, nothing which started 
so poor has today a net of return from our invest on 50% of our returns from past investments that now contributes more than GST, more than personal income tax, more than corporate income tax. So let us bear that in mind and be responsible in how we safeguard this for our future generation. And that is why I emphasise the need for us to keep thinking long term. And finally, you ask, why can't we increase other taxes? Well, I have considered all the possibilities before I even raise this because uh, surely uh, you know, we must consider all possible options. Now, you look at uh, what has uh, happened recently. You know, America has reduced its uh, corporate income taxes. And in fact, uh, globally, there is also uh, increasing debate on what is the fair rate of tax that companies around the world should be paying. And if you are a company headquartered in country A, why are you not paying more taxes in country A? If you are a company selling to country B, why are you not paying taxes to country B? And this is a, a global, uh, almost a global tax competition that is going on because some countries, especially the more developed ones, feel that we are not getting our fair share of taxes. So we must be very careful that what we do do not in the end harm our future because it is easy to say, let me increase taxes on uh, corporates, let me increase taxes on individuals. But many of these are mobile, and if they move out, Singaporeans, will be, we are going to be the ones who suffer the unemployment and, and the slower growth. Now, on the uh, uh, question by our student from Yale NUS, on the, how do we make sure that we include you know, the low income the, and the various groups of people? I think it's an excellent question. And I, I think this is something that we will be very careful in designing the various groups. In fact, uh, just last week, I, I was in a session with uh, Minister Desmond Lee and a few other ministers where we met many of the uh, groups who were working with people from various, uh, with people with various needs, many social agencies, social services agencies. And we had a very good discussions on some of the things that we could do together. And I would say that the outreach must go beyond just the social services agencies. In fact, as a member of parliament on the ground, I meet many of my residents. Some of them are very uh, quite comfortable. Some of them need help. And indeed, uh, we will make sure that the sessions that we organize uh, work together on, on that. And in fact, uh, the, there, are, there will be forums for various groups to make sure that we hear a very diverse set of views. Because everyone, as I say, should have a future in Singapore, a stake in Singapore, regardless of your starting point. On uh, Zainu's question, Ambassador Zainu's question about the managing differences, and not just for politicians, I'll say that um, your point, you are pointing to a, a 
broader set of issues about whether do we have enough diversity of views? Right? Are we considering diverse views? And I would say that, in fact, uh, even in the, I would say even in this room, this is an IPS crowd. These are people who come for IPS seminar. You are very interested in policies. I'm quite certain that even in this room, if we were to do some polls and some uh, measures, you will have very different points of view. The important thing is to make sure that we have the same sets of facts and we base our arguments on the same sets of facts and on, on truth that we can agree on and look at what are those creative ways in which we can solve a problem. And in fact, Singapore Together, one of the objectives is precisely for that. There are many different ways for us to achieve an objective, which is better, which is uh, more sustainable, and this is something which we can discuss. And I would say that I hope that there will be many more of such uh, discussions about what are the right things, what are the good things that we can do that will be sustain sustainable. And organizations like IPS, the universities, and in fact many people are putting out you know, options, policy options for us to study. Uh, Janadas mentioned earlier on about the IPS scenario that the team did years back. And those are good things for us to consider. Um, could I, is there anybody on this side of the room? I haven't seen any hand raised. Am I missing someone? If not, can we start with you and then the man in the middle and then, then the young man over there? Please, go ahead. Me? Yeah. <coughs> Hello, Mr. Ting, uh, Ming Singh from People's Power Party. Yeah. All right, um, you talk about uh, diversity force and you talk about national identity. Well, if you go back to the founding years of Singapore, we actually face uh, diversity forces also. Sorry? We also face diversity forces. Because um, after the war, we have a nationalism that comes up from the communist China, Malaysia, Right, And we have a big problem to deal with it back then. But after 30 years, we have integrated as a core. Now, my question is, the diversity force actually is coming back again. By statistics, when we looked at even from 2007 up to recently, 2019, we are giving out about 20,000 new citizenship from different countries especially the mainland China and Malaysia, again, and um, India, right, and Philippines. Now, with the geopolitics changes, with a rising of a Chinese um, dominance in the region, we might face a situation with a 7% of, at least 7%, eh, from 2007, 2007 to now, 7% of new citizens should they have. Where will they stand when we have to make a difficult decision in geopolitics? For example, you may give citizenship to people, to mainland China, but they will always have this core, what we Chinese call 情意节, 中国情意节. Allegiance, allegiance, 
will not change overnight. Right? Will this affect our policies, our political direction and the decision that we made? And will they actually exert their, their thoughts to be pro-China or to be pro-Philippines, okay. pro-India? I think we've got the question. Right. Second. I, we can't hear you. Is the mic working? Yeah, yes. yes, it is. Um, a bit more of an international question this time. You're mentioning and how... And you are... Oh, Minsa from United World College of Southeast Asia. Okay. And you're talking about how um, in a lot of developed countries, there's an increasing amount of divisiveness. I'm wondering to what extent you think that divisiveness in the public discourse is actually a systemic issue, for example, with the political system. For example, in the U.S., the political system has been criticized for an electoral system that leads to a two-party state. Um, it's susceptibility to corporate influence and also a system that generally does not always respond quickly to um, changes in public opinion. And I'm wondering to what extent do you think these systemic issues lead to a political discourse that doesn't necessarily reflect public opinion and is therefore more divisive? Public opinion in Singapore or in the U.S.? In the internationally and in the U.S., it was the example I gave. I mean, you're asking as a general question. Yes. Okay. My left is silent. No, no question on this side? Oh, there is one more in the middle? Okay. Why don't we have that? Uh, good, good morning. Uh, my name is Walid and I'm from NTU. My question is on POFMA and I would like to relate it to the team, central theme of your talk just now, DPM which is here, 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 yeah. Uh, so uh, I would like to relate it to the central theme of your talk, which is trust between the government and the citizens. Uh, my question is, do you think moving forward, your, uh, your leader, under your leadership, the government will continue to see harsh laws such as POFMA as the antidote to problems that we have? Don't you think such laws only increase and widen the gap between citizens and the government, especially in the way that it's been used today, uh, almost exclusively on members of the opposition, and especially with the revelation that if a statement has multiple interpretations, as long as one of them or a few of them are misleading and false, uh, it can be, it can be uh, the POFMA can be invoked. Thank you. Um, yeah. By the way, the citizenship um, figures is 15 to 25 a year, and I think there was a story in, the New York, in Singapore uh, Straits Times yesterday that actually the largest source of immigrants, new citizens, is not China. It is actually Southeast Asia. Most of them, Malaysia. China is the second. The majority is Southeast Asia. China is second. Third is India. So first, uh, let me address Mr. Gomeng Singh's question about whether having, you know, new citizens will end up as a sort of new divisive force. Now, the, in fact, it can be if we exploit it and start casting doubt on the uh, loyalties and on the fitness of new citizens or that we create a new divide. As I mentioned in my speech earlier, one in three marriages today involve a Singaporean and a citizen of another country. And uh, we have to bear that in mind. In fact, as a member of parliament, 
every of my Meet the People session, I have some Singaporeans, you know, men or women, who will come to me and say, I married so-and-so from this country, and, uh, you know, can I get the citizenship for my wife or my husband quickly? So, it is, and we must bear in mind that for those people who have become Singapore citizens, they have become citizens by conviction. They have left their country and decided that Singapore is a better place for them and their children in the future. So we should, as Singaporeans, make the best effort to integrate them, to integrate them into our society, to welcome them, so that they can be part of our team. And in that regard, I must say that I'm very um, troubled that so many uh, people are seeking to exploit these differences. Instead of making the effort to integrate them, they have made this into an issue, and they have made this into, you are not taking care of Singaporeans, you are not taking care of Singaporeans' interests. On the contrary, having new citizens is very much part of our effort to take care of Singaporeans. There are many business leaders in this room here, and I can tell you the number of sessions that I go to when doing the work on the future economy, on how many times they have been the, uh, telling me how hard it is to grow their companies in Singapore. Because, in fact, our criteria for bringing in foreigners, even as on an employment pass, on the work pass, on a special pass, is tighter. We have foreign workers levy and so on. All this is to ensure that we also take care, we take care of the interests of Singaporeans. And having the foreigners in our midst adds to our strength. There's another aspect which I think is bear, worth for all of us to bear in mind, especially the younger ones in this room. I mentioned about the age of global uncertainty and the age of disruption. One important way that Singaporeans can excel and thrive in this world, in this age of uncertainty, is to make sure that we grow up in a multiracial, multi-religious, multilingual society. And that ought to give us a very high degree of cultural sensitivity. I met a group of students, young students the other day, and a few of them had uh, foreign students as their friends in the class. And they told me about the learning that they had, learning about other countries, other cultures, particularly those in Southeast Asia. And it has been a very enriching experience. I felt very cheered by that because I think when they grow up, when they will be in a good position to interact with our friends in ASEAN, in Asia, and all over the world. And that gives Singaporeans an edge. A few years back, I mentioned that I hope that you know, all over the world we have differences. Even when you travel, you have to carry different adapter plugs, right? Because some are two pins, some are three pins, some are square, some are round. And that Singaporeans should be like the you know, adapter plug that we carry all over. 
wherever we go to, we can plug in and draw energy and uh, link up with all. And having that cultural sensitivity, having that respect for people from all over the world will give us a very, very special edge, especially in a world where people are turning inwards, in a world where people are less, less willing to cooperate. I think if Singaporeans can extend a hand, we can be bridge builders in a more fragmented world. And the key point is that we, whatever we do must be to take care of Singaporeans and of Singapore's future. But if we take a narrow nativist approach and say that well, let's keep out the world, let's keep out trade, let's keep out other people, then I think eventually Singapore will wither. Now on the question by our UWC students on the, uh, you know, how different systems are different political systems are creating uh, rather different outcomes and that the interests of people may not be well represented. This is an issue that the whole world is uh, facing. In America, for instance, there used to be very good bipartisan consensus on key issues. But today, the politics even of the primary election is such that the more you can the, the, to even just qualify to be a candidate, you have to appeal to your base. And the people who are most active at the base are the people who have the strongest views about a particular set of issues. And so as a result of which, instead of building consensus and building a sense of togetherness, you see the political process creating deeper polarization and more extreme views. And this is very bad for not only the, the, the country itself, but also for the whole world. And uh, part of it, I think that how we need to redesign some of this system is something which has to be very carefully thought through because you are absolutely right that how to get the interests of many different segments of our population, many groups in our society together. But by polarizing differences, we actually don't solve the fundamental issues. For instance, if you look at the issue of jobs, it is not possible for all jobs to come back just by imposing tariffs. The losses in the end, the, to the well-being of the consumers, will be significant. And instead, we should be looking for new ways in which we could cooperate and have fair rules of trade that would allow all to prosper. But you touched on a very, very significant question. The last question by Mr. Wahid on POFMA. Um, you know, you mentioned about the harsh laws. Actually, I was in America a few months back. And first of all, let me, let me clarify what POFMA is about, right? POFMA is not about stopping people from having different points of view. As the term says it is on falsehoods. If you make a first you make a false statement and that it affects national interest in some ways. Why is it important to have that? So I was in America a few months back and I met a number of different people talking about online falsehoods and falsehoods that have been purveyed. And a very thoughtful American said to me, he said, you know we Americans believe in free speech, in the 
different opinion. And that has been, that diversity of views has been a strength. And he said, I believe that everyone is entitled to his own opinion. But you are not entitled to your own facts. Because without proper facts, you cannot make the right decision. The country cannot collectively make the right decision. And you see that in, uh, uh, in many instances. In fact, uh, recently, the uh, Nobel laureate Joseph Stiglitz had an article in the Financial Times talking about the marketplace of ideas. He said the marketplace of ideas work if you have proper facts. And if you are buying a, a cough syrup and the, there is false information on that, only the individual suffers. And even for that, we have very strong, the Americans have very strong, and all countries have very strong rules on what claims you can make about the efficacy of particular medicine, what are the side effects, and so on. So in many instances, to protect public interest, you need to ensure that what is put out is true and that the person is not lying to you to encourage you to buy something. Now, Professor Stiglitz then went on to say, when you have even you know, some, an issue like this, a product like this, whether it's food, whether it's drugs and so on, where we insist on having the right facts, for political discourse, when you are making decisions about the future of a country, all the more, you know, we need to make sure that opinions and facts which are put out are accurate and not false and misleading. And we see all over the world how different groups of people are seeking to exploit by even fabricating facts. And even in the case of uh, Brexit, you know, the numbers that were given out about how much the UK was uh, remitting to the EU every week was grossly exaggerated. And I do not know the extent to which that influenced the voters' decision on Brexit. But these are major, major decisions affecting a country's future and a people's future. And how can it be based on false facts? And therefore, POFMA is precisely to tackle this rising issue of fake news, false facts, that many people, unprincipled people, are prepared to purvey in order to get their position. So I hope that we take a principled stance on this. But I can assure you that, you know, Everyone is entitled to your opinion and views. And in fact, the earlier question about diversity that Ambassador Zainu asked, in fact, I welcome uh, a diversity of views and approaches and that we can discuss this. But we must discuss on the basis of some facts that we can all agree on. Otherwise, there's no premise to, for any further discussion. I don't see... Oh, okay. Please, carry on. Good morning. I'm Francis Nian from JTC Corporation. Uh, DPM, I think you've alluded to the development that we have seen that 
parliamentary democracy is in trouble in the US and in UK, and in the UK, even direct democracy seems to be in trouble. What do you think is the future of parliamentary democracy in Singapore? In this entire discussion this morning, we've barely heard the word parliament. In fact, I think just once when you mentioned that you're a member of parliament and you were talking about hearing the views of people who have married non-citizens, but we've really not spoken about parliament at all. I think Parliament seems to be very conspicuous in its absence in our discussion this morning. Thank you. Very good question. Um, somebody was flashing a light over there, behind. Um, good morning, Steve here, and good morning, Mr. Devon. Um, I think that succession planning is absolutely critical for a country as small and vulnerable as Singapore. Um, not to say there shouldn't be checks and balances in place. My question is, how is it that when Singapore does it, it's called succession planning, but when most others do it, it's called consolidation of power? Is it a faint or distinct line between the two, and how do we tell the semantics apart? Thank you very much, sir. Over there. I didn't get your name. Sorry. Yes. My name is Lily Ong. Thank you, sir. Okay. Lily Ong. Um, what's up? Please carry on. The man in the middle. Uh, yes, uh, good morning, uh, DPM. Uh, I'm Leong Manwai from the Progress Singapore Party. However, the questions I'm going to ask and the opinions expressed are my own. Okay. I, I have actually three short questions. First, diversity has been a common uh, topic today. Okay, we have talked a lot about diversity. And diversity is something that is a norm, you know as our society develops. Given that Parliament already have NCMP and uh, the nominated uh, MP scheme, is there a plan or is there a consideration to actually uh, uh, move into a proportional representation in our Parliament? Okay, first question. Second question, given the recent changes to the elected presidency, there is a feeling that the effectiveness of the system as a check and balance on the executive is curtailed because the num most importantly, the eligibility criteria has been toughened. Okay? As a result, there will only be a handful of Singaporeans who are eligible to stand for the presidential election. Okay, so, second question. Third question, I think many Singaporeans uh, would like to know, given the state of development of our country, we have become a first world country, actually, in terms of our uh, economic uh, attainment. Uh, what, how do our government position our nation in the world in the next 10, 30, and 50 years? I think there is a general uh, there's some thinking that Singapore is still only a mercantile nation. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Uh, one more question, and then we will... Hi, uh, yeah, Matthew Ting from Thailand Foundation. Uh, it relates a little bit Silent. to uh, the uh, POFMA question earlier. So, uh, if POFMA is about, uh, you know, the, the, the right... Uh, getting your facts right uh, uh, before you can actually make uh, opinions on the facts. Do we have like a, a freedom to, to information or freedom to facts uh, uh, kind of uh, act in Singapore where 
you know, the, the, the people can, can access the, 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 the facts easily uh, and uh, in, in a very accessible way. Uh, and also, uh, are there facts which are too sensitive to, to, to release to the public and, 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 and therefore it's difficult to make an opinion based on the fact? Okay, thank you. So, four questions, we'll, we'll hold on for that. Yeah. Okay, first, uh, on the question parliament. asked by Francis about Parliament and, you know, why it is not... In fact, uh, you'll see that there will be many uh, different parties here asking questions. So, let me say that when we talk about uh, governance, the, the main issue that I want to deal with is that we should not be thinking about governance narrowly in terms, just in terms of you know, parliament, political parties, and uh, those are very important institutions, right? Parliament and who gets to govern, who are in the opposition and so on. And having robust debates in parliament on many of these issues, particularly of national policies, uh, are important for our long-term future. But as you see from my, uh, what I mentioned about Singapore Together, at the end of it, it is how society organizes itself. So earlier on, we have a student from UWC who said, well, you see political systems all over the world free. And I think we need to think about governance and good governance much more broadly about what citizens can do, what different groups can do, to build a better society. It is not just about a political discourse. I've met many uh, different groups, particularly in the last year when we had our bicentennial commemoration. And what struck me was how so many different groups of people have come together to create a better life for their people. In the earlier days of our history, when our forefathers came as migrants. They came to this shore and they were basically on their own. And groups of people gathered together, whether from the same village that they came from or by the same religion and so on. And they made common causes, even though not a single group was represented in parliament. <laughs> but that social, that governance, that willingness of people to come together to create a better future for themselves, to take care, take care of one another, was what made Singapore successful in the last, you know, 100 over years before we became independent. So I think it's important for us <clears throat> to think about governance, not narrowly in terms of this. So let me be clear that I, Parliament and the institutions of government, the public service, the various organisations that are doing, you know, the VWOs, I mean the social services agencies and all that, are doing very important work. And so we do need to have all that. What I'm saying is that over and above this, we should just, not just focus on the forms, but on the substance of what we can do. And that is really the spirit of this Singapore Together movement. Now, um, the second question by, I think, Lili, eh, about yeah. why do we talk about uh, succession planning, whereas, or is it a consolidation of power? I, um, I was uh, recently, I recently, I was recently interviewed on the Channel 8 program and uh, one of the uh, interviewers said, you know, um, Mr. Heng, you are the, he used a Chinese phrase, uh, Tai Zi. Yeah. 
meaning that you are uh, the prince going to succeed the, you know, to the throne. And I immediately corrected him. And I said that, unfortunately, we don't run. I, said, I told him that, please be very clear, we don't run a dynastic system, right? This is not uh, an imperial system. Whether any one of us take on any particular position in government depends critically on the support of our people. If our people don't vote us in, there's no question of forming the government. But we have a deliberate process within the party to make sure that we do not just do the work today, but we think about the future. We think about how do we continue to bring in people to join us to take this system, to take the country forward. And in that regard, uh, I must say that uh, we have been uh, working very hard to find uh, people whom we hope to feel for the elections and who can make a significant, who can make a contribution in the coming years in many significant ways yeah, in their own right. But we are uh, doing that. So I don't think that uh, this play of words is, uh, is a correct characterization. Now, the third question from uh, Mr. Leong on the SPP. Well, you have three questions. You have three short questions, so I'll give you three short answers. You said, uh, uh, first, why we have diversity, you know, NCMP, NMP, and proportional representation. Should we have proportional representation? Now, we've looked at systems around the world, and every system, as our student uh, from the UWC mentioned earlier on, no system, every system we look at, you'll find that there are issues. There are no perfect systems. And whether you end up with PR, proportional representation or not, does it lead to a better airing of views? It may or may not. But what is important is that, as, we, as uh, Ambassador Zainu mentioned earlier, how do we ensure that different viewpoints can be brought to the discussions in our public discourse? And I think this discussion that I, IPS, in fact, many of uh, many different forums that have been organizing, is a very helpful forum for us to discuss whether it's uh, about social issues, whether about economy, or whether it's about political issues. If, you, if we open our minds, you'll find that there are plenty of different opinions that are being aired in Singapore and around the world. You have access to the internet, you have access to uh, the global newspaper all over, and you see that that proliferation of views is not uh, missing. But what is important is that we don't end up with polarization. We don't end up with extreme views that are being pervaded you know, by uh, the different groups. Your second question about changes in the EP, um, that a check and balance has been curtailed. I really don't understand the basis for you saying that. The, in fact, the president has a very important custodial role. And before I can even introduce the supply bill in parliament, I have to assure the elected president that I will not, this budget is not likely to draw on past reserves. And every year, 
when the uh, Auditor General has completed the work, I have to certify to the elected president that this year, the Auditor General has confirmed that I, as Finance Minister, have not drawn on past reserves. So the protection framework that we have and the custodial role that the President is playing is functioning well. So I don't understand the basis of your question. Now, your final question on the, are we a mercantile nation? I, again, I don't understand your, uh, what you mean by mercantile nations. But if you mean that, do we trade with other people? We do. Uh, do we just take a narrow view and say that I will trade with you only if it benefits me? Well, trade is the free exchange of goods and services. And we trade because both parties benefit from it. So I don't think Singapore's trade is three times our GDP. I don't think we can afford, you know, to be uh, selective on what we do. Finally, there's uh, a, there was a POFMA question uh, on uh, right access a, to information. Yeah. Well, whether we sh your question is whether there should be a Freedom of Information Act. Now, let, let me say that uh, if you look at the cases for which we have to uh, act against falsehoods, the issue is not about access to information. The issue, critically, is about the intention to, to distort. I issued the first correction on POFMA because it was alleged that Singapore, uh, or rather our Tamasek and, and GIC, have lost $4 billion in a Marathi project because the Amarati project was uh, uh, cancelled and that we had already spent $4 billion. Now, it is completely false because the $4 billion was for the whole of Andhra Pradesh and the Amarati project was only a fraction of it. And then it alleged that Tamasek invested in a company which Tamasek did not. Now, the, the basis for making that statement was completely not there. And what sort of information do we require? Do we require that you know, any investment that's made by any entity would then have to be subject to a freedom of information and therefore you know, anyone can look at what it is in invested in? Would that be in the longer term interests of the entities? I don't think so. As I explained earlier on, you know, the net investment return contributions, which is from our reserves, have given us more than any source of tax. And we have to bear that in mind that we, I had to act against that because here is somebody who is seeking to undermine confidence in our system and seeking to uh, undermine it in very uh, mischievous ways. So I... I think it is important for all our people to make sure that when we make a statement, when we state, make a statement of facts, it is a fact and not based on some speculation. We have precisely two minutes, 40 seconds left, but there are a number of people who are still standing. So I'll let all of you ask your questions. Please no new people stand up, but 30 seconds each. Beginning with the young lady. Okay. Um, 
Good morning, DPM and Mr. Devon. I'm Gabby Ho. I'm from UWCSEA as well. Um, so my question is actually in relations to the law on gay marriage and why we can't make it legal yet because it seems like the rest of the world has gone that way. It seems like, um, you know, Singapore is aiming to be a very accepting state. We're aiming to be more accepting of people from different cultures, of different backgrounds, of different beliefs. So why is it that we can't um, give the LGBT community the respect that they deserve yet. Okay, got it. Actually, you want to go straight to gay marriage, bypassing 377A. Uh, okay. <laughs> In the middle. Uh, good morning, DPM. Uh, my name is Elvin. I'm from uh, the National University of Singapore. I have two questions with regards to the substance of the Singapore Together movement. Uh, so the first question is, from the bird's eye view, it seems that Singapore Together movement seems like a, our Singapore Conversation 2.0. Um, could you elaborate pragmatically, practically, um, concretely speaking, what does Singapore Together movement entail in terms of uh, how citizens are going to get their policy inputs? Okay. Uh, and number two, very quickly, um, is also to what degree do, will citizen inputs be actually considered uh, by the various government agencies? So, for example, if there's a consensus from among the citizens, for example, to abolish 377A, will the government do it? If there's a consensus among citizens to not increase GST, will the government do it? Okay. If there's a consensus for other okay. things, right? Okay, I think we've got that. One more, last one. Uh, uh, good morning. Uh, my name is Evelyn. I work in a public agency, but I'm representing myself as a citizen. I just want to share a bit of context. I know I have very little time, but please, please let me speak. Okay, I'm 34 this year and I have two kids. So maybe I'm very simple-minded, but I grew up in a very sheltered and protected environment. But I'm a, personally a beneficiary of the system and the country that our founder founding fathers built over the last 55 years. And that's also the reason why I enjoy public service, because I love my country, and I hope that I can contribute to making it a sustainable one for myself and for my future generations. But I think that the issue that we have is that we are too complacent and we have taken things for granted. So to me, it is important to engage citizens and have conversations. But what is more important is how we can trigger conversations among Singaporeans, that we need to look past ourselves, that, um, that we need to think of something bigger than ourselves, which is Singapore. How does DPM think we can even get Singaporeans to see that it is something deeper within ourselves and it is not the government's fault that we are not um, being considered? Thank you very much. Okay. Actually, I I've just been handed a note say I can go overrun by 10 minutes. <laughs> so, please, one more question. Um, good morning, DPM. I'm Jing Xuan from NUS. So, recently there was a study done by Dr. Ng Kok Ho that around 1,000 people in Singapore are homeless. So, what are the obstacles Singapore government faces in ensuring that all all, a lot of Singaporeans live under a comfortable shelter? Thank you. Okay, I think... Okay. Can take one minute each. Yeah. Okay, I have one minute each. Huh? Uh, so first on, on Gabby's questions about you know whether we'll make gay marriage. Uh, why can't we make gay marriage uh, legal? Now in the there has been and I think IPS itself has done some study right on the views of the generous. Uh, yeah. Touch on that. Yeah. No. I, well, uh, the the proportion of people who approve not gay marriage but uh, um, abrogating 377A has been growing, but they are still a minority. More young people are in favour 
than the general population. So, so this is an issue that uh, where our society have no consensus on this. Uh, and in fact, there are many more people who are against this than people who are supportive of this. Uh, that said, I think you know, we, the, uh, uh, in terms of the citizens' ability to interact with others, to uh, uh, have a job and so on, is not uh, diminished. But what is important is that it, for certain issues for which where views are so different, it is for us to hold that social consensus and over time views may evolve. And, uh, but it, what is important is not for groups to go on a confrontation because when we do, then I think the views will be even more polarised. I believe that you know, views will change over time and we will have to build that. And even that, it is not the case that all over the world, you know, everybody has changed their rules. The second question about, uh, from uh, our student Alvin at Yale NUS, concretely, what, uh, what is the difference between our Singapore conversation and Singapore together? Well, Singapore conversation, as the word suggests, is conversation. So people talk, we share our views, we get a better understanding. So I think that sharing of views and perspective is useful. But I hope that Singapore together goes beyond the sharing of views, which is it goes towards action. It goes towards what Mr. Rajarana many years ago talked about, a democracy of deeds. A democracy, a good democracy is not just that people go to parliament and say, you know, let's do A, B, C and all that. And, but rather, it is one where every citizen does his or her part to make life better for everyone. I share with you an example when I met a group of students recently. I met a group of pre-U students and they said, oh, uh, Mr. Heng, we are rather concerned about inequality. So I said, what can you do about it? And they looked at me for a while and they must be wondering, I'm a student, what can I do about it? And he said, then after a while, we had a little brainstorming. And I said, so in the end, we came to an interesting solution. I said, suppose the primary five student who doesn't have to uh, take his PSLE, doesn't have to worry about you know, spending time on preparing for exam, comes to school 10 minutes earlier a day and reads to someone in primary one who can't read. In fact, that was a question they raised to me. They said, we're concerned about inequality because we see that some kids in P1 can read very well and some kids can't. And I said, well, how about doing that? Would that make a difference? And all the students said, wow, yes, indeed, that would be. So the point is that every one of us can make a difference. I've met, for instance, uh, many people in our community network for seniors, where they're taking care of other seniors. And together they form uh, Neighbours Corner and they get together to make a life better for people around them. And of course, uh, we have many, many social services agencies where people are just doing that. So that is at the, at the level of what we can do. But at the policy level, you also ask, you know, suppose there is a consensus on this or that, will we change the rules? And indeed, if there is a consensus that we are going to make these uh, changes, we will be prepared to consider. And even on the GST issue, I'm, be, I'm prepared to to uh, you know, justify why I think as finance minister looking at our finances that it is 
in Singapore's long-term interest, and in particular long-term interest of our young people, that we have a source of recurrent income to take care of our seniors. And that's something that we have to do. Now, on Evelyn's question about uh, the, how you have benefited from the system and how can we trigger conversations on you know, looking beyond ourselves, and that is an excellent question. And I hope very much that Singapore Together can be a forum for doing that. Because for us to consider not just ourselves, but what can I do for others? And this, this willingness to step forward to care for one another, not just in words, but in action, will make Singapore a much more cohesive and inclusive society. Just as my example of how even students can make a difference. And finally, the question from uh, our colleague in MAS, and talking about uh, people are homeless. Now, in fact, uh, actually, if you look at Singapore's home ownership statistics, it is quite remarkable that such a high percentage of our citizens own their own home. And in fact, for many, the, their biggest asset has been home ownership. So, many of uh, the residents in the HDB flat would have bought a flat for a certain you know, $50,000, $100,000 many years ago, and today it's worth several times that. And uh, uh, Minister Lawrence Wong had, had earlier announced some schemes for how the assets can be monetized. But still, there is a small fraction of people who are uh, homeless. But if you look at the state of this in Singapore compared to many other places, uh, it, it is... The, the problem that we have is very small, and I know that Minister Desmond Lee has been taking a lot of action, talking to different groups, understanding the issues that they face, and bringing them to shelters, bring them to homes uh, that can support them. And uh, I have residents, all, all the members of parliament have residents staying in rental blocks, for which they have been helped in many ways. So if you look at our social support scheme, our social support for our citizens, the budget for social support has gone up significantly over the last even just 10 years. And I'll be providing some of these details uh, you know, later on, on the latest numbers in our social support scheme. Um, I think that the young gentleman who asked the question about um, SG Together, and uh, the spirit of the question was, are there taboo subjects? And the example he gave was 377A. Would the government be prepared to engage on 377A if it came up? Um, the answer actually was, the question was asked earlier and it was answered by, um, by Ms. Indrani um, uh, some weeks ago. And the answer is, yes, of course, we will engage. The government is prepared to engage, or at least that's what um, she said. The other question um, on the homeless Actually, that is an example of the extent to which the government moved on the question of homelessness as a result of the engagement on the issue of NGOs. Um, as Minister Desmond himself acknowledged, our understanding, the government's own understanding of the issue changed as a result of this engagement with NGOs who, work, who are working on this issue. Um, I'm surprised there's only 28 days left before you announce the budget. 
and the question has not come up, so I will ask you this question and we can, one minute to answer, is it going to be a GE budget? <laughs> you can make news. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, is it going to be a GE budget? It, it surely depends on when GE is called, right? Because I think the Prime Minister can call for the GE in the latest by April 2021. So uh, there may still be another budget in February 2021. But jokes aside, I think what, what is important to consider is that it is important to think of our budget not as a, you know, a goodie bag that people look forward to. The, uh, I, you know, over the weekend I was uh, in some ground, uh, grassroots events and many of them happened to be, we were launching this uh, Chinese New Year festivity and right in the centre was the big God of Fortune. And then they said, oh, and then we had a God of Fortune uh, following us on some of these events. And some residents started saying that, oh, the real God of Fortune is there. Because you'll be giving Hong Pao. And I said that, you know, if you look at the traditional gods of fortune, it is a roly-poly figure, right? Full of uh, a big size, full of fats, therefore ready to give things away. But this is quite a skinny one. <laughs> really what we have to consider that the budget is not, it's really a financial plan that supports a more strategic plan for Singapore's future. Many of the things that we invest in our budget, whether it's to restructure the economy, to provide better opportunities for our people, helps us to build capabilities, not just in a one or two years, but over the long term. So for instance, if you look at our budget for economic uh, upgrading for workers' training, it has gone up significantly. And we have to think of ways in which the resources of the country is put to the best use for our long-term future. It is not a short-term giveaway because that would not help us to build the capability to grow and prosper and to allow our people to have a better life. But in other areas for which there are groups of people who will need special support, for which we should think about how best we can support them in this journey, then I think we have to consider what specific measures may be helpful. So for instance, uh, whether it is a short-term problem, like today the economy is not, uh, you know, with this trade war going on, the global economy is not doing well. And so what do we need to do? We need to think about what measures, what short-term measures we need to take. But beyond the short-term measures, we also need longer-term measures. If we look at uh, segments of our population who will be under uh, stress, what else do we need to do? So I will give one element, like last year, in last year's budget, because of our bicentennial, we started a bicentennial community fund to support institutions of public character in their fundraising, for which government provided uh, much greater support, both in terms of the uh, tax breaks that donors get, as well as the matching. Now that many of these IPCs have taken effort to raise funds, and I hope that will last them for a number of years in supporting our people. 
So those are the measures that I think we need to do that A, will provide the resources that are needed and B, build a greater sense of togetherness in our society. And I applaud the work of many of our IPCs in really championing the causes of particular groups and in not just talking about some groups are stressed and that you know, not, nothing is done, but really in taking action, in putting, contributing their time, their effort, and very often their own money to make a difference. Thank you, DPM. Um, our time has uh, come up. Um, this is actually your fourth, I think, appearance at Singapore Perspectives, as you recalled in your speech. The first was entitled Difference. The second, I recall, was entitled We. This one, and then third was Together, and this one is Politics. I don't know when will be your next appearance. The title then may be Succession. So thank you very much for attending this conference for the fourth time.